Greetings, Kaiju fans. My name is Joshua Gilliland of the Legal Geeks. Uh, I'm Nari Ely. Um, I'm a civil litigator in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for joining us here at our first appearance at Denver Pop Culture Con to talk about the things that we love the most. Godzilla, Gamera, Mothra, and all the other rubber-suited foes and monsters that we have seen over the last 65 years. So, how many of you have seen the new Godzilla movie? We will not give away spoilers for those who haven't, but stay tuned for lots of blog posts and podcasts because there's lots there. We are today going to celebrate the King of Kaiju and the friend of all children and the queen of the monsters with a deep uh, dive into legal analysis of these awesome creations uh, over the last 65 years. We've introduced ourselves. Uh, I focus on electronic discovery, uh, NARI, civil litigation. Uh, specializing right now in labor and employment. So we are real life attorneys. <laughs> well, let's get to the first question that's on everyone's mind. Who pays for acts of Godzilla? <laughs> you know, when he, when he wades ashore and a tsunami follows, who pays for that? Does homeowners insurance? And it's, it's a really complicated question because there's this uh, doctrine in the law called, it depends. <laughs> and people hate that answer, but it really, really depends on what's in your homeowner's insurance or renter's insurance. Because if there's a giant monster stomping around, they're not like watching out for cars. <laughs> Those tails swing around and knock down buildings. Like they're, they're not, you know, they're accident prone. And so uh, getting into like, would insurance cover this? It depends on what's in your policies and exclusions. Now there's a solid argument that Godzilla coming ashore with a tsunami and you, if you have flood insurance, that should be covered. If Godzilla steps on your house, probably not. <laughs> if Godzilla hits a building and that lands on top of your house or car, that's probably covered. So there's going to have to be some accident reconstruction because the insurance companies will fight like hell because they don't want to go bankrupt rebuilding San Francisco. Like those are some of the big issues. But there's, there's another big issue that deals with government response. Can local governments recover emergency costs by whoever could have caused the monster to come ashore? And again, this one's actually more well-defined. Most likely, no. And it comes from cases that, that are sad because this is people having really bad days of an airplane crashing into a neighborhood. Like, that's happened, and local governments have sued, saying like, hey, we want all the emergency room costs to be paid for by the airline, and the courts have said, that's your job as a government. This is what you do, this is why people pay taxes, that you're supposed to send emergency responders, you're supposed to have emergency rooms. That's on you. Now, if it's a really big disaster like Godzilla stomping along, that's where FEMA's gonna kick in. Because uh, <laughs> when you think about it, and you know, again, this is touched on Godzilla 2014, both Las Vegas and San Francisco get crushed. You don't say, oh, too bad. Because there are people called senators and congressmen, and they don't get reelected 
if they let their hometown or a giant city in their state go without recovery. And so there would have to be uh, a governmental response from the feds to either help people relocate and start new lives. And that could be interesting. Let's say that San Francisco couldn't be inhabited because of the MUTOs. What happens then? Does everyone in San Francisco just move to Monterey and go like, hey, they got fog, we could pull this off. We could build some stuff here. Or does California shift from being the super blue state to maybe turning red because everyone in San Francisco moves to Texas? Because Austin's nice and liberal <laughs> and would fit that doctrine. Does Texas turn blue because of Californians who move there? So there could be political ramifications as well that change the electoral map with California actually losing congressmen because the population base goes to Portland, Texas, and other places. That is just fascinating to think about if you had to leave and they had to leave San Francisco abandoned. So fascinating issue. <laughs> Um, and also, I want to say, uh, you know, this, I, we usually intend these to be interactive. If you have any questions, um, I, please feel free to raise hands. Uh, we, we love getting audience questions, and we've historically gotten great questions um, at, at conventions like this. Um, okay, so now I'm going to take a moment to talk about um, an act that I find really fun and interesting, <laughs> the Endangered Species Act. So the Endangered Species Act was uh, passed to protect species that are endangered or threatened. You have to be classified as endangered or threatened. The species is endangered if it is in danger of extinction throughout all or a significant portion of its range. Of course, it's a, it raises an interesting question that even if uh, King Kong is endangered, what is its range? Um, a species is threatened if it is likely to become endangered um, in the foreseeable future, etc. Um, a species is considered endangered because of natural or man-made factors affecting its continued existence. Now, the fact that we only ever see one King Kong or like one Godzilla or one kaiju of any variety pretty much for that matter. They all seem to be pretty unique. Um, uh, yeah, assuming they're not all uh, variations of exactly the same species. Yeah, let's, let's not talk about Minya, but yeah. yes. <laughs> or the emotional trauma known as Son of Kong. <laughs> Um, or two, okay, so one or two, yeah. Uh, still, uh, uh, I'll, I'll get to you in just a second, but yes, I see you. Uh, 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 highlights the fact that they're probably endangered for purposes of this act. Now, the second part, besides defining what qualifies as an endangered or threatened species, the ESA, of course, also prohibits certain actions regarding them. Um, and this, to me, is a little bit fun because the, the, the word that the uh, act uses is it prohibits the taking, um, among other things, and we'll get to that in a second, but prohibits the taking of an endangered or threatened species. Now, of course, what does take mean? Fortunately, it does actually provide a definition elsewhere in the act, but it includes some stuff that I think most people who aren't uh, environmental lawyers probably don't think of. Um, take includes harass, harm, pursue, hunt, shoot, that makes sense, wound, kill, trap, capture, or collect, or attempt to engage in any such conduct. Now, all of those seem to have happened or been attempted on King Kong, so probably this is uh, all of the movies involving King Kong involve replete, are replete with violations of the Endangered Species Act. Um, and another interesting thing that the Endangered Species Act prohibits is actually the collection of even um, the body parts, even discarded body parts um, of endangered species. And this would make sense because you also want to prohibit or limit the extent that there might be a marketplace um, for like bald eagle feathers and things like that. 
because that would encourage um, uh, poaching of endangered species. And to the extent possible, I, th I think most people are at least vaguely aware of the problems of poaching of rhinos and things like that. You would want to make that as difficult as possible. Now, I, I had a question from um, a spider suit. Is that a spider suit? Sorry, spider. red suit. <laughs> You predicted yes. where we were going. So the question is about invasive species. Do you want to tackle that now, or do we want well, to wait? So, um, oh, so we can talk about okay. that. So um, uh, in invasive species are different, and arguably a lot of the kaiju are invasive species, especially, um, I don't know if anyone's seen Pacific Rim, but in that one, they pretty clearly are because they're, they're, not, they're, they're not indigenous to the, United, uh, to the, to the Earth. Earth. <laughs> they're coming from another dimension. <laughs> um, and typically with, a, with invasive species, um, you are authorized, and to, uh, states will actually authorize entire hunts of um, invasive species. So I think that's why, for example, the act specifies within its range. So if, you know, uh, uh, let's say Australia, for example, is not typically the range of a bunny rabbit, um, but they, they have a lot of them, um, and they are doing a lot of damage to species that do typically have range there. Um, so if, the, if we had an ESA in Australia, it would probably permit the taking of, of bunnies, although I, don't, I doubt they're very endangered anyway. <laughs> yes, uh, let's do it in the front and then in the back. So the question is, King Kong lives on Skull Island, so how does the you know, Endangered Species Act apply? Well, let's take Kong Skull Island, the movie. You know, uh, Sam Jackson's character decides, I'm going to exterminate this giant ape. He would be prohibited from doing that because of US law, because it applies to our soldiers, because we can't have them go out and just hey, let's go sh out and shoot a couple of rhinos. Like, they can't do that. Uh, there's also a good argument that his men would have been right to have disobeyed his orders because arguably it's an illegal order for him to issue, let's go out and kill an endangered species. Yeah, so uh, just to quickly add to that, yeah, so um, within the um, Uniform Code of Military Justice, fun fact, it is punishable by death to refuse to obey a lawful order, although the last time that a person was executed was in World War II, and it was for desertion. But you can, uh, you can disobey an unlawful order. Now, granted, it has to be pretty clearly unlawful, but if you know that King Kong is an endangered species and your commander says, let's shoot that thing, you could probably say no, and it would be fine if you got court-martialed. Yeah, yeah there was, there's a case from, like, 1825, uh, that dealt with uh, Aaron Burr, so like the leading, you know, a prodigy of that, that says it's repugnant to justice to have to follow an un unlawful order. So you don't have to. Gentleman in the back, then. Uh, the blue jacket, yeah. yeah then, we'll, then we'll move on. You, so in the Pacific Rim context, you could actually argue it's an act of war, and so we don't have to deal with the invasive species. They are, but that's by nature war. Uh, right, and I could actually imagine um, you designing a bioweapon, um, and it could, instead of being a virus, maybe it comes in a small visible organism, yeah. um, and there's only a few of them in the United States, but it was brought here by, you know, let's say, I, I don't know, China or some, some power that is currently featuring an, as a villain in comic books. Also, the Japanese at the tail end of World War II, they had an attack planned on San Diego for September of 1945 using 
uh, disease-ridden fleas that would have been dropped on San Diego. And again, biologic weapon using living organisms, and uh, they didn't get to do that. Uh, they surrendered <laughs> instead because we won. Uh, and I, I am going to cover this a little bit later, um, something related to this, but we'll move on for now. But there is a little bit more on that. And I know I saw more hands, but we do have a, a lot to cover. So we try to take a certain number of questions, but we do have to move on after a while. Save them for the end. Yeah. Save them for the <laughs> if end. If we have extra time, yeah, we'll definitely take more questions. Okay. Let's talk about uh, the, the Shoah era of Gamera, where he's just saving kids left and right. Because kids <laughs> keep getting abducted by UFOs, and Gamera goes out and saves them. Does he have a duty to do that. Well, they'd be boring movies without him doing that. And these are, yeah, they're campy, but they're super endearing. And God, I do love those, those googly eyes on camera. <laughs> but uh, for, you know, like here are three of the movies where he just keeps saving kids. And oh, and actually, if I could just say for the for non lawyers in the room, um, what we mean by the duty is that uh, you can sue people in tort for doing things that harm you. So this would be in theory if if if, uh, if Gamera failed to save a child, could the parent, um, you know, having their their child having been killed while other children were saved, could they sue Gamera for having failed to save save their child? That's yeah. what we're talking about. Good luck with service of process, but uh, and just for the record. The Boy Scout uniforms are accurate, uh, and, <laughs> and and that's awesome. And and like they, there were just received a silver antelope award. They might not know what that is, but that's not <laughs> important. But the, the issue is uh, it, that was a uh, Gameron versus uh, uh, I think uh, uh, Giron, and you have these Boy Scouts, and it's a joint U.S. Japanese, and it's accurate because there's the Far East Council, and they're wearing all the right patches, and they were group activities like that. Uh, so there's no general duty to go out and save somebody. And there are a lot of horrible cases where you go like, wow, so somebody was drowning and you just watched it? You're a horrible human being. You're the real monster in this story. But there's no duty uh, under the law and to, to go out and save them. Now, the exceptions to that, there are uh, situations where there could be a state law. It's like police officers and firemen aren't supposed to go like, God, that really looks dangerous. I'm not going to go help those people. It's kind of their job. Like, they don't get to, like, clock out. Uh, you also have contractual relationships. Uh, there are also, you know, other laws, like with parent and child, that, you, you know, parents have to take care of their kids. Now, Gamera is friend to all children. And, that might be a special relationship. Yep, and, which brings us to category three, the special relationship. <laughs> if you have a theme song about saving kids... <laughs> Okay. Yeah, it's that 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 indicates there could be a special relationship right there. Uh, you keep showing up to save kids abducted by UFOs, hence there's a special relationship. Now, I I think you could make a clear argument that he doesn't have a general duty just to go save kids everywhere because that's hard. Uh, but in the context of kids who are abducted by aliens who want to use the planet as food. That totally makes sense. Uh, he seems to have made it his job. Yeah, he seems to have made it. It's his thing. Uh, he'll go save the kids if they're abducted by aliens or taken to Planet X. It's what he does. And uh, so I, don't th I do think there's a special relationship just because it would have made the Showa movies boring. Uh, but if you haven't seen them, check them out. They're adorable. And if you haven't seen the Hezai Gamera, go do that trilogy right now. 
It's awesome. It's the best kaiju trilogy ever. But I might be biased. Now let's talk about one of my favorite uh, kaiju, and that's King Kong. You know, if, if you, you know, between what uh, Marion Cooper created and what Willis O'Brien, you know, brought to life uh, with, with stop motion, uh, it, it's a work of art. Uh, and, and funny thing, Marion Cooper's brother was an attorney. So in the beginning of Son of Kong, we have, uh, you know, Carl Denham hiding out to avoid service of process because there are a dozen lawsuits against him and a grand jury has been convened. And I love that because no other kaiju monster sci-fi movie actually acknowledges the law. And they did. Now, <laughs> apparently he doesn't know what the default judgment is, but uh, it raises the issue of like, he brings Kong back to the United States. He's gonna put the on- default judgment is if you fail to show up in court. Yeah, and get tagged. Uh, so we have Kong who's gonna do vaudeville. And <laughs> Denim says, don't worry, that's Chrome Steel holding him at bay. And that should be a red flag right there because Chrome Steel doesn't sound like, like a good plan. And we have the photographers and the flashes go off and Kong gets aggravated and then goes on a rampage. Eats people, drops people out of windows, derails a train, all of that's bad. Now, we I, have- I see you in the green shirt. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to you. Uh, there are laws on the books that say, if you have a wild animal, you're strictly liable for any damages that that wild animal causes. So like, there's no pet bear exception. Like, it's like, it's a bear. Uh, <laughs> and, and there's California law and New York law that talks about like, hey, chimpanzees are wild animals. And a wild animal is presumed to be vicious. So Kong going around on his rampage, Denim would be screwed in court. Should we take a couple yeah, questions? Yeah, okay, yes. uh, green shirt first, and then uh, that, that. red shirt in the front. So, so what you're saying is the only end to Jurassic World would be Bryce Dallas Power getting like dragged off in chains. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. So, um, <laughs> check out my our the our blog, thelegalgeeks.com, because I did a big article on the Jurassic World class action litigation, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's all there. Um, and, all there. and I don't want to digress on this too much because we actually, I think, are going to cover a little bit of this, a little bit of this on a panel um, uh, later today um, about uh, sci-fi inventions. But generally speaking, the person who uh, uh, created the technology to create dinosaurs or create hybrid dinosaurs would probably not be liable themselves, but the person who actually makes the dinosaur, <laughs> um, not just designed the process um, and failed to take reasonable safeguards, etc., you could almost certainly prevail in a civil lawsuit for against them for damages. <laughs> Mark. <laughs> what, what about um, uh, sort of intervening causes, right? So I, you know, I brought this perfectly tame King Kong in, uh, and it, it wasn't my fault that he was aggravated, it was the fault of the paparazzi, right? Or imagine, right, somebody actually lets him out of a cage, right? Um, so, so there are zoo cases, this is always fun legal analysis, because I spent a lot of time looking at cases where wild animals get loose, and the owner never gets out of liability in the cases that I've seen. You know, can I, can I bring the other people into liability too? Can I go after the paparazzi? Yeah, I would, but you know, I'm uh, that, that's I'm, I'm the aggressive point of lawyer type of 
go after Although them. I think opening the cage, maybe not the, the photographers would be harder, but opening the cage, um, I think you could probably at least sue uh, for, for Cross. Yeah, I w and in, 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 there are issues with the photographers and negligence. They wouldn't be held to strict liability. Denim's going to be judged by strict liability. The photographers could be judged by negligence because they're not the owner of Kong. And that's where this gets exciting with the different standards that apply. And different standards make life exciting. Yes, sir, yes, in the back. What about criminal liability for all those bad? That, good question. Um, you know, they, they didn't address that by the end of Son of Kong, but, uh, you know, for those who haven't seen it, it does end with Denim getting jewels from uh, Skull Island, and that might be enough. Well, and, um, and Josh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but um, so I believe I don't. There are a very limited number of negligent homicide statutes. Correct. Typically, in order, so you could. So there's a difference between bringing this. Uh, you can bring suit for wrongful death, for example, but that's civil. Mm. But generally speaking, homicide statutes, and of course, you have to have a criminal statute in order to have jail time um, on the table, um, or, or death penalty, things yeah. like that. Um, uh, generally speaking, with very limited exceptions like vehicular homicide and things like that, you generally need some level of intentionality. Now that could be recklessness, which is still different than negligence. Um, there's actually one of my, sorry to digress just a little bit, but one of my very favorite terms in the legal world is uh, one of the intentionalities, which is called depraved heart murder. <laughs> uh, and that's essentially sort of somewhere between negligence and intentionality. Um, I guess the closest thing is, is recklessness, but it's not called that. And it's essentially instead of, it, while the, you know, it's beyond recklessness, because it's not just that the conduct you took was reckless towards um, whether or not it was going to hurt someone, but it was so recklessly indifferent as to whether or not you were going to hurt or kill or maim another person that we're going to get it even closer to uh, uh, intentional first degree murder. Yeah, and with bringing a giant ape to New York and not having adequate safeguards to keep said ape from getting out, that I think would raise some interesting questions with criminal negligence. Also, just with the way that the Son of Kong begins, the people of New York are really angry. <laughs> so they would probably find a way to make it stick to at least get past the motions to dismiss, uh, dismiss stage. Yes, sir. That's a very good question on what's a reasonable you know, precaution, but it's strict liability. Yeah. So it doesn't matter uh, because if we were with negligence, that's, a, that's where the analysis goes, but it's strict liability, so he gets tagged no matter what. Which brings us to King Kong versus Godzilla, where Mr. Taiko takes all of the bad denim qualities and turns them up to 11. <laughs> because he decides that his company, for marketing purposes, needs a giant monster. So let's go get one and then bring it back. And he's like purposely evading the, the Japanese Coast Guard. There is absolutely no import control and things go sideways and Kong gets free. But as Kong is rampaging, he proudly says, that's my monster. Okay, if I were his lawyer, I would tackle him and gag him I and drag him away. I would if I were his marketing director. <laughs> yeah, it's a, you know, it's like the blow dart to knock him out and take him away because that would be bad. Yes. Yes. Would the charges fall on him or his company for bringing 
That's a good question. So would the charges fall on Mr. Uh, uh, Taco or his company? And he was a pharma company, I don't remember the name. Uh, I would go after both because I'm aggressive. <laughs> uh, go after him personally because he personally made bad decisions. If I was his board of direct, you know, on his board of directors, we would hang him out to dry, saying that was all him. He was acting without us, and that was crazy stupid. Uh, well, let's let's go to the musical part of this. Uh, you know, War of the Gargantuas. Now, who here has seen Frankenstein Conquers the World? Okay, if you haven't get that bad boy on DVD. It is so bonkers crazy. Premise, end of World War II, the Germans have the undying heart of Frankenstein and they're doing experiments on it. They give it to the Japanese who take it to Hiroshima where they're gonna do experiments on it and then we drop the atomic bomb and end the war. The heart grows into a little boy by 1960 and keeps growing. It's hysterical, uh, <laughs> and it was so crazy out there. Nick Adams is in it. If you like Monster Zero, go see that. Uh, this is the sequel, but it's somewhat disconnected. Well, as Frankenstein, you know, his cells get scraped off, another one of him grows, and this one's aquatic, and it goes around eating people. So. Is there liability for the people who raised Frankenstein for the clone of Frankenstein going around eating people? Because he snacks on people. And there's a wonderful musical number called The Words Get Stuck in My Throat. You can imagine what happens to that blonde singer. <laughs> and uh, I don't think there would be liability in this case because it is so attenuated. No one expected the heart to grow into a boy. And like, yeah, they raise it, but they don't expect a clone to pop up. And it gets into interesting issues of like, how do you fight this? Because the military wants to go in guns blazing. It's like, do you really want like 50 of these things running around? We're gonna have to incinerate this to make sure there's nothing left. Uh, so yes, uh, Spider-Man. Well, so that's a question that gets to what is negligence. Yeah, it, that, um, and yeah. so negligence, the typical standard is reasonable person, reasonable precautions, and that's that is fuzzy, so that's a little annoying. Um, but so in a scenario where you have, you know, a giant—I I forget how exactly how much weighs—but uh, gorilla, you probably have, you know, a reasonable person would look at that and think we have to take enormous precautions. Um, if you have something that's a completely unknown entity, it's not clear that it's actually violent, things like that, you can make a sensible argument. Now, granted, maybe your judge, if you are actually in court trying to argue this, is going to disagree with you, um, or I'm assuming you being the defendant, um, but that you can make the colorable argument that I, you reasonably looking at this, I, I took some precautions, you know, I had a latch on the door, but um, I just didn't think he was going to eat people. Yeah. There was no reason to think so. We didn't think a clone would pop up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that that's different than we know a big gorilla can go crazy and rip people's arms out of their sockets. So it's a different Mr. Uh, gentleman in the teal shirt. So who do you go after for the squad Because <laughs> Oh, we're getting to yeah. We're going to come to that. 
Give us 10 minutes. You've predicted a slide. Yeah. <laughs> um, in the front and then in the Jedi robe in the back, or middle. For this kind of situation, though, could you possibly like, put blame on the Americans and stuff? Because they're the ones who dropped the atomic bomb, which inadvertently created the Frankenstein in the first place? No, because then you look at Frankenstein's creature was made by Frankenstein, and then you ironically had evil Germans doing experiments on a heart. Well, and, and this is also getting into the law of war, which yeah. is its whole other thing. Um, I, we don't have a, a huge amount of time um, to talk about it in this slideshow. I have done um, uh, presentations on it in the past, but the really brief summary I can give is that law of war, like all international war, is is actually, it's technically in flux. It's not written down. It's formed by the norms of nations. Um, and one of the things is uh, that you have to have, um, uh, you can actually t uh, take pretty drastic action uh, commensurate with the law of war, but there's things governing it like um, proportionality. Uh, and so I'm not entirely sure that you created a radioactive monster that caused harm would ever really fall into that because it was during time of war. Arguably, the nuclear weapon violated the laws of war, but we'll, we'll that's, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, Let, let's talk about all the people beheaded in China. So, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, so um, let's speaking of international law, mm -hmm. um, so uh, this one actually is a treaty, so it's not actually, strictly speaking, international law. This is a, a the treaties, um, so long as they're consistent with the Constitution, uh, apply with uh, uh, full force and effect in the United States, unless you need Congress to actually apportion funds, but that's a whole other thing. Moving on. Um, uh, so we have a situation where Godzilla is rampaging in Japan. Now, some people here may know that Japan actually is prohibited from having a military. Um, and that was because after World War II, uh, in our peace treaty, um, we, uh, in our treaty with them, we require them, they, they have a limited amount of what's called police force. Defense force. Yes, defense force. Um, and it does kind of resemble a military, but it's still quite limited. Um, and that was, uh, sorry, the Japan-U.S. treaty known as the Treaty of Mutual Cooperation and Security between the United States and Japan. Um, it was created to strengthen the bonds of peace and friendship between the two countries in order to uphold the principles of democracy, individual liberty, and rule of law. Um, it was very important. It's why they still don't have a military. So if you have, uh, you know, Godzilla rampaging through Japan, um, you know, that seems like something that they would need a military for. Now, Article 5 of the treaty states um, about bilateral defense. Each party recognizes that an armed attack against either party in the territories under the administration of Japan would be dangerous, etc. Um, and at that point, you, the United States would be called in by treaty, would be required to help out Japan. Is Godzilla an armed attack? <laughs> yeah. He does have small arms, it's true. <laughs> um, Better now, than a T-Rex, but... As a strictly textual matter, are, you know, pretty clearly not. He's not an arm... He's not, uh, this refers to you know, armed attacks by nations with armies. Um, it's, that's what it traditionally refers to. And, and there are many uh, Godzilla movies that allude to the fact that Godzilla is itself a force of nature, that it's a personification of nature. Um, and so this would you know, arguably, for the purposes of the textual analysis, be closer to like a typhoon hitting Japan. Japan, which the United States would still probably help out, but they're not bound to by the treaty. However, going to the spirit of the treaty, and this is why I was highlighting that Japan doesn't still doesn't have a military because of this treaty, um, the spirit of the treaty is that the United States is supposed to help protect Japan because it doesn't have its own military. Um, and that's also setting aside, and there's also other reasons why, including that Japan is one of our closest allies since World War II for the past 70 years. Um, uh, you would also probably have involvement by other nations just because there's no reason to think that Godzilla is going to stop in Japan. <laughs> um, it can probably, you know, we can see that it's amphibious. It can probably make landfall in California. 
Um, and also, you know, Korea, China, Russia, everyone is probably going to, on the Security Council, is going to want to say, yeah, let's, let's maybe help out with this. Uh, uh, questions. Uh, first, uh, black shirt and then teal shirt. So would G-Force play a factor? Yeah, that, that would follow. That shows the spirit of the of what we would do because after the first time this happened, everyone would get together and go like, whoa, time out. Let's figure out a battle plan here. And like, because that's what we do. And you know, just to talk about like the purpose of the treaty, you know, like we're a unique country. We're one of the few places that after having bloody wars with people, we make them our friends. Like, we stay, we're still in Germany, there's still in Japan. We did have the benefit of learning from the, uh, it was a treaty of Versailles. Yeah, we learned, <laughs> we learned from World War I, make friends. Yeah. And we're very good at that, and like, that's one of the highlights of, of these movies, and when you think about the relationship that we have. Uh, and so. there, there, are, there is um, actually speculation in one of the movies if they could call in the United States to help. And at the end of one of the movies, the United States does. Help. Yeah, because yeah, <laughs> yes. Now let's talk. Oh, about, uh, just uh, let's do the. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, one more question, then we'll move on. Oh, I actually don't know that it. Well, so it, to bring in the, the law of war again, actually, I'm not entirely sure that it does. And it's because, for example, we can imagine, um, you know, drone warfare is, is not all that uh, uh, far off, not just with a human remote control, but also autonomous. That's actually, you know, not sci-fi at this point. It's the near future. Um, and so, uh, you know, and arguably, like, that would definitely fall with an armed attack. And what typically that, and this is something that I've, again, talked about with other law of war topics, but typically what defines um, uh, an armed force uh, for law of war purposes is things like, a, is that they, they wear a uniform. So you would have to have, even if you had a drone or a robot, it would have to be wearing some kind of identifiable insignia to show that it's a member of a country's army, yeah. right? And so, but so um, Godzilla still probably not armed forces. We would observe. We would probably uh, 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 respond to a call from the treaty for other purposes beyond the text. Um, oh, I don't know that you could have. Well, so I don't know that any court has the power to make Godzilla do anything. But yeah. <laughs> the so, so the issue of the personhood, I do think Frankenstein's creature, you know, the gargantuas, can qualify for personhood. I don't think Godzilla, Gamera, Mothra would. I do think they're highly intelligent, but I, I think it's they're in a completely different category of kaiju. But, but and I know we have more questions, but I think we should move on. If we have time at the end, please remember them, and we'll be happy to talk about them. So let's talk about the War Powers Act very quickly. Yes. Um, so it, as a really brief background for, for people who are not familiar with how um, the war powers work in the United States, um, uh, the Constitution actually divides what we would think of as war power into and splits them between uh, the legislative branch and the executive branch. So on the one hand, the legislative branch, I think, as everyone knows, has the power to declare war. That's very important. A lot of things happen after you declare a state of war. 
Um, but the, the president actually explicitly has the power to make war. And so you would, you know, logically ask, what is the difference? Well, so it turns out that um, uh, in the long history of law that we've inherited from Britain, um, as well as, you know, writings from the time of the uh, uh, writing of the Constitution and past practice of presidents, it's pretty clear that um, presidents can within have inherent power under the Constitution to respond to an, uh, an, a sudden attack or invasion and repel them, um, which of course means also repelling them a little bit outside your border. So this was actually relevant, uh, for example, in various wars that the United States, or not wars, military engagements that the uh, United States had with various Native American tribes because they would repel an attack, but then they would go into Native American territory in order to continue to repel it. Um, uh, you also, though, have uh, a long past practice of U.S. presidents going all the way back to Thomas Jefferson in the first Barbary War, um, uh, also taking action limited in terms of time and resources uh, to a certain extent um, to protect American lives and interests off American soil. Um, and uh, that's pretty clear that it, it's a, a very well settled that the Constitution empowers the president to do those things, and he does not need to ask Congress for permission to do so. In fact, he's probably required to do those things by the Constitution. Um, of course, the question of you know what is sufficiently limited so as to remain constitutional and what goes on too long or engages too much of our forces to be constitutional and requires the uh, president to ask Congress, that's a bit of a fuzzy question, um, but, it, but it is there. Now, so uh, to not get too into the weeds on it. The War, uh, war Powers Resolution essentially um, uh, requires the President to notify Congress within 48 hours of committing armed forces to military action and forbids armed forces from remaining for more than 60 days with a further 30-day withdrawal period, um, after which you would need a congressional authorization of military use of force called AUM, uh, AUMF for short, or a declaration of war. Um, uh, so go ahead. If you uh, won't give away spoilers, King of the Monsters totally addresses this by the way the military acts. Because um, you don't want to wait. Yeah. If you see a Godzilla or you know King Ghidorah or anything like that, Ghidorah, <laughs> uh, Monster Zero coming ashore, don't call Congress. Take them out. Yeah, don't call your Congress. Yeah, there, um, there's no time to debate. <laughs> Shoot first. We'll figure it out later. And so to, to try to just get a little bit of constitutional law geek here, like this is one of the reasons, for example, that although there were many systems that could have been chosen, including parliamentary that was in the UK, um, uh, uh, the framers went with a unitary executive that has a lot of its own inherent powers um, specifically for that reason, that there are sometimes things that you can't wait on any committee, even though it was discussed and debated to have a three-person tribunal instead of a single president. Um, but you don't want to have committee decide. At some point, there are risks and you always need to be wary of presidential power grabs. Um, but you, at some point, you want just to be able to make a quick decision and do respond to Godzilla. Yeah. On the flip side, if you had uh, a debate about, why don't we just go hunt these things down? That probably would take a force bill. And a good example of that was uh, in 1871, Congress passed a... Uh, the Ku Klux Klan Act, which was a force bill for Grant to hunt down and exterminate the Ku Klux Klan. And we did. And they went extinct to about 1912 until William Sessions brought it back. So they could do something similar with Kaiju, and that probably would take force of law to do. Now we're going to get to your question that you just asked a minute ago. And so save, save the rest so we can, we'll have some at the end. Now, are the oil co now? If you've watched uh, 
the ultimate uh, Earth Day movie, uh, Godzilla vs. Uh, Hedorah, Save the Earth. Uh, watch the music video. Are those oil companies responsible? Maybe. There's an issue of tracing to figure out where all the waste came from. Now, oil companies can be on the hook because of spills. I mean, look at the, uh, you know, the, the um, deep, deep water horizon, deep water horizon you know, incident. Uh, I know one of the lawyers who worked on that. She did not have a good time. Uh, oh, on the defense side. Yeah, 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 for BP. Yeah. Uh, she doesn't do that anymore. Uh, and I understand why. So if you could go like, hey, all of that came from Exxon. Sure, go after Exxon. Now, the part where a meteorite lands in the water and like creates the smog monster, that's not their fault. It's tough to go after them for all the damage that came from that because it's just, you know, like that's not foreseeable, it's not reasonable. But you can go, over, go after them for all the oil spills that they did. And like this was made in the 70s where like pollution was like really bad. Uh, so it, is, it does have a nice environmental message, but let's take the issue of environmental laws on a military basis. Right. Um, so by executive order, uh, the U.S. military, uh, essentially to summarize what's, what's on the slide there, does not have to follow most of the environmental regulations that would otherwise have effect in the United States um, abroad. So for example, in military bases abroad. And I will also note, and this is kind of fun, so you will note that that is an executive order. So what's interesting about that is you can't have an executive order that just says we're not going to we're not going to follow this law even though this law applies or we're going to do this thing even though this law prohibits it. So executive orders have to exist within what you think is that that space in between in which there's stuff that's permitted or uh, uh, you have some creative space essentially. And so um, there, there's something called clear statement rules about statutory interpretation, um, and that means that in some circumstances you in order for something to be interpreted a certain way it has to clearly say it in the statute. Now there's something called the presidential clear statement rule, and what that means is that unless a statute explicitly says that this is meant to apply to the president and the military, to the executive branch generally, um, it's, you, don't, you can't interpret it to. It has to clearly state it. So for a lot of U.S. environmental laws, the um, U.S. military, because it's part of the executive branch, actually doesn't have to follow them, but it does so voluntarily, typically through executive orders. Um, and so that's why over here we have another, uh, we had the executive order. Um, the other, uh, sorry, what's on there? Yeah, I think that's basically what I just said. Yes. Yeah, and so my, my, um, my boyfriend actually served in um, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, and we'll tell you about all kinds of like trash that was burnt and um, things that you would never be permitted to do. Uh, I think there are still some laws that like I think the Clean Water Act um, uh, does explicitly apply to the military and things like that but you have to you have to check the text. And just to finish this off there are some Japanese laws on the books that could uh, impose liability for creation of Fedora and if Godzilla was created from nuclear waste like in Shin Godzilla there could be liability there based upon Japanese environmental law. And we're running low on time, but I just wanted to mention that I think, you know, generally speaking, the, the, the presidential clear statement rule is for pretty good reason. Um, I don't know if anyone's familiar with, like, the impact statements that you have to do when you want to do construction in the United States and there's an endangered species in the area, but it's pretty onerous. Um, and if you needed to do that, uh, you know, when you had a, a serious military um, purpose that you needed to accomplish quickly, you know, there's, there's good reason why you would want to be able to waive that, essentially. Um, so there, there are good reasons for that. Uh, but to quickly move on. Let's, um, let's get into property rights and 
Oh, uh, if you check our latest blog post, uh, I break down the actual cost with uh, inflation <laughs> and and the yes. uh, uh, difference difference from you know, 1965 to today. I'm going to try to cover this as quickly as I can to maybe have a minute at the end or two for questions, but I really love this topic. Um, so property rights is actually a bundle of many rights. It includes the right to sell, lease, encumber, use, enjoy, exclude, to make will. For our purposes, we're going to summarize it as the right to exclusive control over a thing. Um, the 1964 classic uh, Mothra versus Godzilla, of course, centers around a property right, specifically who should have Mothra's egg. Um, now, the film opens with a typhoon washing Mothra's egg uh, on in, uh, from infant island out to sea. Uh, fishermen uh, find and recover the egg at sea. The local villagers claim the egg is theirs and sell it to Happy Enterprises, who plans to build an amusement park around the egg, which, of course, uh, has its uh, own Screams issues. bad idea. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah. What could go wrong in this world with giant monsters? Um, so a, 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 a pair of fairies uh, later tells the proprietor of Happy Enterprises that the egg belongs to Mothra. Uh, he's going to come back and, and try to get the egg. Um, but the, uh, uh, the proprietor ignores the fairies and instead uh, attempts to buy them. Um, so this is you can't buy people. So by positive law in the United States, the 13th Amendment, you can't buy people. Um, and fun little quick trivia, the 13th Amendment is the only provision of the Constitution that can be directly applied to private citizens. Every other provision of the Constitution deals with protections against government and government officials. But the 13th Amendment, you could, you could say that my neighbor is violating my 13th Amendment rights and just sue them directly. Yeah, we fought a civil war over it, so... <laughs> Um, but the question remains, who is the rightful owner of the egg? So the first question is, did Mothra lose her egg? Now, we're running a little short on time, so I'm going to try to get through this uh, as quickly as, and summarily as possible. But essentially, at common law, um, there's a lost property and abandoned property, and they have pretty much opposite definitions. So lost property is property that is left in a place where the owner likely did not intend to leave it and is unlikely to find it. Abandoned property is, of course, the opposite. It's in a place where the owner likely intended to leave it, but is in such a state that it is clear that the uh, owner likely does not intend to come and reclaim it. Um, now, there's, of course, state statutes that often supersede these or add requirements. Like, for example, if you find lost property worth over $100, you might have to report it to the police, things like that. Um, but the common law rule uh, uh, can apply anywhere where it isn't superseded. And just fun fact, um, you might be wondering like where this stuff comes from, but we actually lost property rights were established in the UK in 1722. How does that matter to the United States? Well, the United States inherited the entire body of common law from the United Kingdom um, uh, at the time that we became a country. So anywhere where it's not superseded, we still have uh, the UK common law. Um, I don't think I have time to get into the details of the case, but it was really fun. It involved a, a chimney sweep boy. But anyway, um, going to instead focusing on Mothra, it seems pretty clear that Mo that Mothra did not intend to leave her egg on a uh, out at sea near Japan. <laughs> Unlikely to find it also, since Mothra is not aquatic. Also, well, let's not get into the Mothra trilogy, but uh, you could make a clear argument that um, Happy Enterprises was fatally stupid. The the, they bought the egg for about $34,000 in today's money. You're buying an egg with a monster that's going to pop out of it. You don't want to incur that liability. That's a bad deal. Uh, the, the other part of this is there's a classic case called Gen V. Rich, which is something all lawyers learn their first year of law school, which dealt with uh, 
a whale carcass that hunters killed, and they put a bomb lance in it, bob lance in it as a mark of appropriation to say, this is our whale that we caught and killed. This is a giant egg. It's multicolored. Mothra's a big moth, multicolored. Is that a mark of appropriation? <laughs> I would think so. And if two twin fairies showed up that speak in unison and said it's their egg, take it. Um, and All to, you. And to quickly wrap up, so lost property rights generally at common law, if you find lost property, um, you have a right to that property that is that is generally absolute. You can sell it. You can do whatever you want with it. It's superior to everyone else's claim to it except the true owner should they reappear. So we have about two minutes for questions. Yes, sir, in the teal. I don't know. Is that reason? Is that foreseeable? I, no, because we thought it was extinct. Next question. I can tame the giant shark. Yes. Oh God, Super Sentai. Uh, uh, and, and like that's that's one genre I've never gotten into because it was never on TV where I grew up. But I've listened to podcasts about it. Yes. So why don't we go there and make it quick? Yes, sir. No, the hijacking absolved you. Yes. <laughs> TheLegalGeeks.com. So you can follow us on social media there. Uh, check us out. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and our... And, and if I could plug a panel that's in a couple hours, uh, the law of Star Trek, we actually do have more discussion about personhood, especially um, AI and things like that. So if you want to hear more about <laughs> the... Yeah, this room. If you want to hear more about law and personhood and uh, uh, science fiction and things like that, please come back. And tomorrow's Star Wars and Marvel. So thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you.